Galatians chapter 2, a couple days ago, I saw a headline. It said, who makes the law? It was an editorial in the Wall Street Journal, but who makes the law? It was about the legislative process, Congress and lawmaking and, and those sorts of things. Of course, I thought about schoolhouse rock, and we know how to make the law, how a bill becomes a law, okay? Um, in the chamber of the U.S. House of Representatives, there are the, these reliefs, these plaques, if you will, on the wall, 23 of them, uh, in along the, where the doors are for the gallery, and there's these reliefs of faces of lawgivers, people who are recognized for having established principles that underlie U.S. law that, that have been relied on as great lawgivers. George Mason, for instance, is one who is there for his drafting of the Virginia Constitution. The face of Moses is on another in the House of Representatives, and he is there as the recipient of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not kill. You shall honor the Sabbath, not commit adultery, those things. When it comes to that that fundamental question of who makes the law, we could probably start there, not with Moses. He's the, the vessel through which God gives the law. It is God's law that establishes the foundation, and God gave that law through Moses to the Jewish people. And there was more of it than the Ten Commandments. It extends beyond Israelite men had to be circumcised as a, as a mark setting them apart from the other cultures. Uh, there was rituals. There was dietary laws, um, just rules about their fellowship and interaction with others, relationships with Gentiles, ceremonies, feasts, sacrifices, all part of God's law. And that's important because the passage we're looking at this morning, as does much of Galatians, deals with this issue of God's law. And so if you look at Galatians 2, we're going to read verses 15 and 16, but you'll see this phrase, works of the law, as we read just these two verses. Galatians 2, 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So there you see that phrase, works of the law, three times in that one verse. Galatians, we know, is a letter written to a group of young believers in the region of Galatia, majority of which it would seem were Gentiles who came to faith in Jesus Christ. Paul comes as a Jewish rabbi, and he preaches to both synagogues where he begins to Jews, but then broader to Gentiles, to ethnic non-Jews, and preaches to them the truth of who Jesus Christ is, that he came as the the Jewish Messiah. He came as the Savior from the, the line of the Jews, from descended from King David. And he comes and he fulfills the law. He lives the law out perfectly. He is sinless. And he is then crucified on the cross. The heart of the gospel that Paul preaches is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And these Gentiles are coming to believe that, that Jesus Christ died as a substitution as a sacrifice for sinners on the cross, and that he then rose again and defeated sin and death. They, they are believing that. That is the heart of the gospel that has been preached to them that Paul is now writing to them about. So having faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ is believing simply 
that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the person and work of Jesus. I rest everything in that. I rest in his death and resurrection, his defeating of sin, his judgment that he receives is, is the wrath that I deserve, and he takes it in my place. But fundamentally, this question of how, how sinners are made right with their creator is what lies at the end of Galatians chapter 2 here. There is the, the awareness that there is a creator God and that we owe responsibility to him. If he has made us, we are accountable to him in some way. And so the question becomes, on what basis does God accept sinners? On what basis does the God of creation receive, approve of people who are sinful, who break his law, who violate his law? Uh, by nature, we are all sinners, we all try right from the very beginning to remove God from the throne and put ourselves in, in his place. We want what we want. We want to be in control. We want to, to rule our own lives. And so we are sinners by nature. We are conceived in sin, in fact, and we, we demonstrate that throughout our lives. So when we die, we will stand before our creator. How do you receive his approval? Or to use the language of Galatians 2, how is one justified. That's the term that he uses there throughout verse 16. We know a person is not justified by works, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ in order to be justified. The, the, the language simply means that I, I am able now to stand before God in a right place. I am able now to, to stand before the holy God of the universe, guilty as a sinner, but with something done with that guilt, something that that forgives or pardons that guilt so that I am able to now be before him as one who is justified. So what is the pathway? The audience of Galatians had, had essentially gotten two kinds of teaching that were really contradictory, even though one was trying to sort of piggyback on the other. They're two very contradictory streams of how it is you are right with God. There is the gospel that Paul preached, which is faith in Jesus Christ alone trusting in Jesus, believing in his death and resurrection, or what Paul alludes to here as works of the law. This is going back to the, 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 the Jewish law given through Moses, and it is, it's speaking of the idea of I'm, I'm going to somehow win God's approval by doing this, by, by fulfilling the do's and the don'ts and carrying out the works of the law. So in other words, I'm either saved by what God has done in Jesus Christ or what I do for God, what I somehow try to, to bring to him. Uh, keeping God's law comes down to how well I, I, I do the do's and don'ts. And so what, so what some rabbis were saying to these Gentile Christians was, okay, so you've chosen this path of faith in Jesus Christ, but, but you must also do works of the law. You must convert over to, to law-keeping Judaism. So the men need the initiation of circumcision, and you need to follow the dietary laws. You must be justified by doing works of the law. The fallacy in all that, we can, we can go back and trace historically even to God's giving of the law through Moses. If we go back into the Old Testament and think of Moses coming to the Israelite people, they are enslaved in Egypt, right? As Moses comes to them to, to be the, the vessel through which God will use to deliver them. As he comes to them, the law has not yet be, been given. Moses does not come to the Israelites and say, while they are enslaved, here is God's law, keep it, and I'll come back and check with you and see how you've done on it. And if you do it, 
then I'll deliver you, right? It doesn't work that way. God, in his kindness, in his love, rescues the people. He delivers them from out of Egypt. God uses Moses to free them from bondage. He didn't save them because of what they had done or because they had earned that from God. And in fact, once they are brought out, Moses is repeatedly teaching them and saying, hey, this wasn't because of who you are. You're not going into this new land because you're somehow really special and really good and the people there are really terrible and so you've earned this. This is God's work in you. If you, you look at Moses speaking to the children and he's uh, children of Israel, he's not afraid to, to say, we are a stiff-necked people. We are a rebellious people. Deuteronomy 9.24, he says, you have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. What an encourager. Moses is to the children of Israel. Folks, don't, don't, don't confuse and think that somehow you in Egypt won God's blessing and did good so that he then saved you. You've been rebellious from the first moment, and yet God loved you, and he saved you. And, and he goes on in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 7, he says, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. And he describes in Deuteronomy 7 that he did that out of love. So if you follow that, just historically, God loved them, chose them, rescued them, delivered them, brings them out into the wilderness... And there he now gives them his law. It is there on Mount Sinai that he begins to deliver his law to them because now the law is the response of a rescued people. It is the, the proper response to the grace of God. It is the obedience that comes in worship and gratitude to what God has done. Their obedience was not going to save them. It was not earning God's approval. God showed them mercy first, and he rescues them out of that. So then, why give the law? Three reasons, it seems, that we get from the Old Testament of purposes of the law. One is that it's God's means for protecting his people. So he is preparing them for, for what they are about to go into, being a people who are surrounded by pagan, idol-worshiping nations, and so the law is to help preserve them as a God-fearing people who keep themselves distinct from the ways of the world and don't get sucked into that. So there's that, that sense of protecting them. There's also the idea of it providing a reflection of who God is as they meditate on the law. It's not just a list of do's and don'ts. It's a, it's a picture of who God is of what the holiness of God looks like, of what God calls for, what he mandates, what he cherishes. And so the God who loved them and saved them gave them his law as a reflection of his glory. And then finally, God's law proves beyond a doubt that we are sinners. God's law comes as this standard that says, you are not perfect. You are guilty. Here is the law. It is perfect. God is perfect. You are not. And so the law ends up becoming this tool that condemns. It's just like we become aware of our laws. You, you, you become aware of speed laws when there's a police officer on the, on the side. And you go, oh, I'm, I am breaking the law, so I better slow down at this point, because now I've been made aware of that. And, and so the law provides this function of, of showing guilt, of revealing guilt. 
In, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is teaching, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and he describes himself as the fulfillment of the law. He is the one, the only one, who keeps the law perfectly. He fulfills the law, and the law has pointed to him and to his coming. And, and he's responding to people who are, who are saying, well, I don't know about perfect obedience, but, but you know, you got to keep it as best you can. And, and, and in fact, in Matthew 5, 48, he says, you need to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And to prove that standard in Matthew 5, he says to those who would say, well, listen, I've never killed anybody. And what does Jesus respond? He says, well, you've thought anger thoughts in your heart against someone. You've been violent in your motives and thoughts towards someone. You're guilty. Well, I've never committed adultery. Well, you've lusted. You're guilty. And so his, his evidence there is to say, no, you have broken God's law. You are guilty of it. And so therefore the law condemns. We all fall short. And the justice of God and the righteous requirement of the law is that where there is sin, the penalty is death. That's why throughout the Old Testament, the sacrifices are used to point to the need for a, a ultimate sacrifice. There must be a, a price paid for sin, and that is death. And for you and I, it, it, to, to break God's law means the righteous requirement of it is that we deserve death. We deserve to be separated from God for eternity in a place called hell. God is just, and it is his perfect justice that is ultimately at stake here in Galatians chapter 2 when they begin to address the law. And so Paul is going to render a verdict on this gospel that he has preached and the subsequent false teaching that has come in and said, no, add works of the law to this. It's not enough to trust in Jesus Christ. Um, we, we looked at the beginning of Galatians 2 last week, and if you recall, there was the two test cases that he spells out at the beginning of Galatians 2 using two different believers, two different individuals who trust in Jesus Christ. Remember, the first one was the Gentile, Titus, who was not circumcised. Law, the, the, the law given through Moses said the initiation right into being the people of God for a male was to be circumcised. So he brings Titus as a test case. Here is a Gentile who is not circumcised who believes in Jesus Christ. The other test case is Peter. Here is a Jew who probably was a, a, at least somewhat law-abiding Jew, but now has come to believe in Jesus Christ. He has put his faith in Jesus Christ, and all of a sudden Peter is reverting back. He goes from fellowshipping with Gentiles, believing Gentiles over a meal, to walking away from that fellowship because suddenly he's reverting back to these old dietary rules and wondering if the food is unclean now because he's at a table with Gentiles, non-Jews. Both test cases were meant to obliterate the idea that works of the law save. Paul has used both of those to say, look, this Gentile who is uncircumcised, who is believing in Jesus Christ, is saved. He is justified by his faith in Jesus Christ. And, and look, Peter, you don't, you don't break fellowship with Gentiles because the message to them is that somehow food now makes a difference. It's not that. Trust in Jesus Christ. They are believers in Jesus Christ. So fellowship with them. It's not works of the law. So when you get to verse 15... And Paul starts with, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. This is presumably Paul still talking to Peter, 
Right? That's the, remember that in, in the letter written to the Galatians 2,000 years ago that there was not chapter 1, chapter 2, verse numbers and little phrases in there that identify each section. It was just a letter. And so the, the break here between Paul confronting Peter and this statement here is probably not entirely helpful. This is probably still Paul confronting Peter. And Peter has broken fellowship with Gentiles over a meal, thinking that he's now doing the right thing based on his Jewish heritage and what he understood of the law, and Paul's already confronted him and said, wrong, you're sending the wrong message, Peter, to these, these Gentile believers. They don't need to abide by dietary laws. And now he continues with Peter, and he says, Peter, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. He's not elevating Jews over Gentiles as much at this point as he's pointing back to the law. We as Jews had the privilege of being part of God's sort of covenant people and, and receiving the law. We had all the blessings and the benefits of being people who were given God's law. We were not outside of it like Gentiles. And yet, Peter, we know that we are not justified by works of the law. And that's what he says. We know, verse 16, that a person is not justified by works of the law. It's like, Peter, we got the law. We, we, were, the, we were the first in line for it. And that doesn't save us. It, it, it's still ultimately only by the same thing that these Gentiles have done, and that is exercise faith in Christ, trust in Christ. And so he is, he's continuing to rebuke Peter here, but reminding him there's, there's no difference when it comes to salvation. Jew, Gentile, it's not the law, it's Christ. If the law that Jews were given couldn't save them because they couldn't obey it, then Peter, why in the world would you now put that burden on Gentiles? Why would you now seek to enslave them and say, you've got to keep all of this when we know that it doesn't save? So verse 17, he says, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. All right, when he talks about our endeavor to be justified, here he is at this point, trying to decipher as, as still an unbeliever. What, what is the way to be justified before God? And, and again, you've got these two paths. I'm seeking justification. There's two ways in front of me. Faith in Jesus Christ or obedience to the law. Which one gets me justified? Paul understood that one of the arguments against faith in Jesus Christ was, if you choose faith in Christ, then you have rejected works of the law. And so the argument by the, the rabbis was, so if you're going Christ, you're saying God's law is a bad thing. You're, you're essentially giving people a license to sin, a license to disobey, because you're now saying it's Christ and it's not the law, and you're rejecting the law, and therefore you are rejecting obedience to God. And so that's his point in verse 17 when he goes, so in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Is, is, is following Christ somehow causing people to sin by seemingly, at least the logic was, steering them away from God's law. His answer to that is certainly not. And here's his explanation. Look at verse 18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. 
Have you ever tried to use a tool for a purpose for which it was not designed, but you sort of, you know, jerry-rigged to try to, to make it happen? I, I am usually guilty of this when I am working on the car and I am or under the car and I probably need a hammer in a given situation and all I've got is the ratchet and socket at that point and so I beat on whatever it is with the ratchet and inevitably do something worse that, that still has to be fixed because I was too lazy to go and get the right tool for what I needed at that moment. What, what Paul's trying to explain here is the problem is you're, you're trying to use God's law for something it was never designed to do. Just Romans chapter 8 for just a second. I just want to quote you Romans 8, 3, and 4. Because here it speaks about this very point. It says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Okay, remember what we said. God's law identifies us as guilty. And the righteous requirement of the law, because God is just, is that guilt demands punishment. And the punishment that God has deemed is, is death. And what he's saying here is, that this is a critical function of the law. The law condemns you, and it shows you God's requirement, but the law doesn't fulfill that requirement for you. The law doesn't save you. And so there's the limitation on the law. It, it shows where we stand in relation to a holy God as sinners, and it shows that we are under his judgment, but the law can't satisfy that requirement. Only one who has perfectly fulfilled the law, who has kept the law, and now receives the wrath of God in suffering on the cross, only that one can fulfill the righteous requirement, and that is to die in the place of sinners. That is to take God's wrath. That, only Jesus can provide that relief. The law cannot. Only Jesus can pay that price. So if you try to make God's law do what it was not intended to do, you simply incur condemnation. You're simply saying, I, I can achieve. Somehow I can, I can earn this, I can do this. And you can't. It's only through trusting in Jesus Christ. That's, that's why the law keeps pointing to the need for a Savior. The observance of the law and the sacrifices of the lambs was all meant to say, Yes, death is the penalty for sin. There must be a death that ultimately receives the wrath of God and is a perfect sacrifice and provides pardon from sin. And that is Jesus Christ. The law can't do that. That's what Jesus has done. One of the, the great themes of this book of Galatians is freedom. Under the law, we are slaves. Spiritually, we are slaves. We are in bondage to this desperate effort to try to do the right thing against what is conscience, against what is willpower. We are, we are striving, we think, to try to do the right thing, and we are in bondage to sin, desperately trying to find ways to ease our conscience. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you can think back to those days when you knew there was something wrong, there was something nagging at you, you knew you weren't doing the right thing, but you didn't know what to do with it. So you tried to find some way to alleviate that sense of guilt that you were in bondage to, trying to convince ourselves that somehow we're really good people. The only way to be free from that slavery, what Paul's describing here, is death. 
How so? Because in death, a slave's bondage is over. One who is a slave who dies is no longer a slave. Now, that may sound like a silly point because, well, they die and they are no longer, but the, the reason Paul's saying that is because as believers in Jesus Christ, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, you were supernaturally, powerfully joined with Christ in his death on the cross. And that's, that's his message here in, in verse 20 when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Paul says, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are actually joined to him. And so when Christ dies on the cross, he, he takes your sin on himself and he bears the wrath of that. And you are joined with him in a way that not only is in death, but life. And you are raised to new life with him as a believer in him. You are now a new creature. And so God sees me in Christ. His point is to crush this argument that says, well, believing in Christ means disobeying and rejecting the law. Paul says, no. On the contrary, when you put your trust in Christ, you are now joined to the one who perfectly fulfilled the law, and you now receive life from him. You are raised with him. Because of union in Christ, you now are actually able to obey. You are able to obey God's commands. You are able to, to follow after Christ because you have been changed by union with Christ. You're given a new heart, and you are a new person. John Stott says, someone who is united to Christ is never the same person again. Instead, he or she is changed. It's not just his standing before God which is changed. It is, in him, it is he himself radically, permanently changed. And that's what he's describing here when he's saying this. Choosing Christ doesn't mean that you're, you're somehow disobeying God or rejecting God. Choosing Christ is, is tying yourself, being in union with the one who fulfilled the law perfectly, and now Christ lives in you. You are a new creature in Christ. That's why verse 18 gives that warning about trying to rebuild something that was torn down. If you're trusting in Christ, here's Paul speaking to the Galatians. You, you came, the gospel was preached to you, you believed, you, you put your trust in Christ, and you experienced the joy of that freedom in Christ. Why would you allow anyone to come along and try to rebuild the law as if you've got to keep this and keep striving in order to get God's approval? You've already trusted in Christ. He fulfilled the law. You were crucified in Christ. You've been raised in Christ. Put your hope there, not in trying now to somehow bring works of the law back into the picture, because if you do that, that's why he says at the end of verse 21, if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If you are going to now start to rebuild the law as the means of getting God's approval, then why did Christ die? It was pointless then. The, the, the secular world around us may say it was some kind of evidence of love or sacrifice or whatever it was, and they don't get the whole justification and Christ dying for sins. Paul's saying, listen, it, it's pointless. The moment you start to say the law is, is necessary again for approval, then you have now made faith in Jesus Christ nullified. And that's why he says there in verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God. If it were achieved through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Instead... He says, believe in Christ. 
and your life is made new. And that's why verse 20, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. It's present tense, right? Our, our relationship with Christ is not just even an historic event. We base it on that, on what Jesus did in union with him. But our faith in Christ is an ongoing present tense. I now live by faith in the Son of God. That's not some vague feeling when we, we, we use faith in that generic sort of way. One, one writer puts it this way, living by faith in Christ is an active and actual ongoing reliance on who Jesus is, on what he has done for us and what he provides for us. Did you get that? Living by faith in Christ is an active and actual ongoing reliance on who Jesus is, on what he has done for us and what he provides for us. I am believing, present tense, that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is everything. My life rests on that. He died, I was joined to him, he's been raised, I was joined to him, and I have new life now in Christ. That's why when we, when we were singing just a few minutes ago, and as he stands in victory, sin's, grip, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. We celebrate that because we are now in Christ, because the victory that he achieves through conquering over sin and death is now imputed to us because we are in Christ. And so we are able to be free from the enslaving bond of the law. We are free from the sort of ego-driven approach to how do I earn God's approval by doing good things, by being charitable, by being generous. Instead, Jesus Christ, through his spirit, now lives in me if I am trusting in Jesus Christ, and my life is changed. I have the freedom and the opportunity now to live for the very one who loved me and gave himself for me, Paul says here. That I, get, I get to now, in gratitude and worship, respond with a living faith that now shows itself in works, as James explains to us. You now see the works, but that's because Christ is in me, because he has saved me, and I now, out of gratitude and worship, can serve him. I can serve him. Our culture celebrates self. Love yourself. Pamper yourself. Achieve your dreams. Do what feels good to you. Don't let anyone stand in your way. The gospel of Jesus Christ, as Paul describes it here, frees us from that obsession with self. In fact, it says, I'm able to die to self. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not that I stop living, because he says I, I'm still living in the flesh. It's not that I have no longer any hopes and dreams, that they're all gone. But what it's saying is that now I am living for a different purpose. I am now driven not by what pleases me by what, what primarily I want in life. I am driven by Christ in me, by the Savior now who loved me and gave himself for me. His life is being formed in and through me and being evidenced in my life. It's living for him by his power and seeing life and its purposes as being to glorify him. That's what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. If you have never done that, it is simply to rest fully. In him. It is to believe that Jesus Christ, that you are a sinner and that, and that you will stand before your creator and that your only hope is in Christ. To believe that he died in your place and he rose again and to rest entirely in that. And when you do that, it says here that we are justified. You and I are, are given a righteousness that is not our own. We, we, we're still, we know we're sinners. We, we still do it. So we know we're still guilty. And yet, 
what's been given to us now is the very righteousness of Christ. Because we have been joined to him, the Father now sees us as in the Son, joined to Christ in his death, in forgiveness and eternal life because we are raised with him in his resurrection. That, 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 the works that flow now flow out of gratitude, don't they? They flow out of a, a thankful, redeemed heart that has been set free to serve him and to exalt him with our lives. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the truths of your word. Thank you for the spiritual truths that are hard for us to sometimes just wrap our heads around. What that, what that means to be united with Christ. And yet it is clear that the New Testament makes that a prominent theme over and over again. You want us to see that we who are trusting in Jesus Christ are actually joined to him. He is not only in us, but we somehow have been in him. And so in his death and resurrection comes our forgiveness and our hope. We thank you for that. We thank you that it is the sustaining work of the Holy Spirit who is changing us, who's changing our desires and changing our responses to situations. Thank you that Jesus Christ in us is what makes us new creatures with the freedom to pursue Christ-likeness. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning not yet trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, Lord, we, we plead with you that today would be the day you would open eyes, that you would soften hearts, that you would bring about faith in Christ, belief that Christ alone is the life and salvation, that only in him is there hope, that we can never, no man is justified by works of the law. We can never keep score. We would always fall short. We would always be condemned were it not for the perfect, sinless Savior who died in our place. Lord, help us this week to be challenged by what Galatians 2.20 says, that we would live now as those who are indwelt by Christ, living a life that demonstrates that in all that we do. May the one who loved us and gave himself for us be magnified in us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.